Thank you so much, Dan, and choir, and soloists, and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. Has been a tough week in the Panhandle, and particularly in our church, and so grateful for your prayers this week, and know that you'll continue to pray for those whose lives are irrevocably changed by the disaster in our midst, and I know together, with God's hope, we'll, we'll make it through it. This morning, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we continue our sermon series uh, at the foot of the mountain. A religious retreat, a weekend away on a prayer walk, a medical mission trip, or even a, a student camp. There are so many ways to have a spiritual high when we're away with God. The distractions of evil and the temptations of busyness all disappear when we walk one-on-one -on -one with God in the high places. Going up the mountain comes with ease, but descending back to the valley below brings us once again to the reality of brokenness. Mountaintop experiences are often, have you ever noticed, are often followed by the mundane. Little surprise that Satan confronts the disciples with the greatest challenge in the midst of their very intimacy with God. If Peter, James, and John had known what was waiting for them at the foot of the mountain, they might have refused to be coaxed to leave the beautiful transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. All that glory of Jesus immediately preceded the removal of the demon that is only comes out with difficulty. Look at chapter 9, look back in verse 2. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became so radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Jesus takes that trio, that inner circle of Peter, James, and John, and with that brevity of words, as Mark often expresses himself, he says, he was transfigured before them. His garments were radiant and exceedingly white. Now, in Mark's gospel, we often have those three, Peter, James, and John, they're highlighted from amongst the 12. Why, it starts back in chapter 1 when they're the first disciples that are called. And then it moves on to chapter 3 when we have the list of the names of the 12. It's Peter and James and John listed first. Or in chapter 5 when Jairus' daughter is dead and Jesus goes into the room where she is. Only the parents and Peter, James, and John. Go into that inner room and, and pray with the Christ for her resurrection. And toward the end of this gospel in chapter 14, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing over the cross before him, the ones he brings closer in the garden, Peter, James, and John. 
They're the inner circle around the Christ. The transfiguration immediately before occurs, interestingly enough, seven days following Jesus' prediction of his crucifixion and resurrection. Turn back to chapter 8 and verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Notice scribes. And be killed. And after three days, rise again. So often when we read these passion predictions of our Lord, we notice that he predicts his suffering All too often we miss that he also predicts his glory or his resurrection. And after that, he tells us he will rise again. So now back over to chapter 9, those early verses. Surely this transfiguration, seven days following the prediction that he will rise again, is but a taste of the glory of God that Jesus will experience in the resurrection. That radiant white It's like the garments worn in the Gospels and Revelation by those who are divine, those who are saved, those who are redeemed. Taken as a whole, this transfiguration, this mountaintop experience is a reminder that the eternal glory of the Father is shared by the Son. Look, Peter, James, and John, the one before you in his radiant Why has the glory of God shining about him? In fact, lest they have any doubts, you remember that Elijah, you remember, and Moses joined Jesus there, the three of them. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And then a cloud descends, and cloud represents the presence of Yahweh, God, in Scripture. And from that cloud is that thunderous voice that endorses the rabbi, Jesus. Even as the disciples are savoring the glory of God in the midst of the presence of Elijah and Moses, This radiant image of their rabbi, they are sworn to silence. Look at chapter 9 and verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. Don't tell anybody. Don't speak of the glory you've experienced until the glory of the resurrection has occurred. Well, I want to outline this this passage. First of all, the disciples in debate, verses 14 through 19, the disciples in debate. Meanwhile, at the foot of the mountain, the other disciples are, well, they're in discord and debate with argumentative scribes. The scribes had probably taken the absence of Jesus as an opportunity to confuse and to confound the disciples who didn't have their teacher there ready to give an answer. Well, this is a large dispute. It's not just about the means and the methods of the present casting out of the demon, but rather as the power and popularity of Jesus grows 
The scribes are frightened that their own position, their own power, and their own popularity and privilege is diminishing. In fact, just a moment ago in 831, he told us that the scribes are amongst those who will have Jesus killed. And as Jesus descends from the mountain, the crowd rushes in amazement to see Jesus. Look at verse 15. Remember Mark's favorite word? Immediately. And immediately, the entire crowd saw him. They were amazed, and they began running to greet him. Now, when the rabbi comes along in this gospel, there is amazement, chapter 1, 2, and 9, or fear, chapter 4 and 6, or being astounded, chapter 5, or astonishment, chapter 6 and 7. They see Jesus, and they run to him, and they are amazed. Now, why are they amazed? Some commentators believe that even as Moses had been in God's presence, that he had this radiance about him that remained, that Jesus was still showing something of the transfiguration there in the radiant white, and so they are amazed by him. I don't think so. Because Jesus himself in verse 9 had said, shh, we don't want this to get out. Don't let anybody know about this power until the resurrection. They are amazed at Jesus, and they run to him because he had been healing the sick and casting out demons and teaching with authority. Having descended from the transfiguration, Jesus asked the question, what are you guys fighting about? Look at verse 16. What are you discussing with them? Now, he asks the question to his own disciples, but they don't answer. They couldn't cast out the demon. Jesus was really the last one they wanted to show up in their powerless state. The father, one of the crowd, I brought my boy to them. I thought they might could help. They couldn't get it done. They didn't have enough strength. They couldn't do it, he says. Look at the end of verse 18. Your disciples, notice, they could not do it. Translation here is, they did not have the strength. Literally, that's what the Greek says. They did not have the strength. They could not do it. Disciples were disappointed that they could not deliver the demoniac. They lacked the strength. Now, you remember just previously in chapter 6 that Jesus could do no wondrous works in Nazareth because of what? Their unbelief. In his own town, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown amongst his family and, and there where he grew up. Because of their unbelief, he did not do the wondrous miracles that he had done in all the other villages of Galilee. There's this theme in Mark's gospel that we must have belief and that faithlessness or half-heartedness are reproved in the gospel of Mark. Jesus' followers failed to realize 
That both believing in the power of Jesus and living in that power is necessary as a source of power. And notice how Jesus responds. Oh, unbelieving generation, verse 19, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. How long, an allusion, of course, to the cross before him. How long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him over here. I'll take care of it. I want you to notice that Jesus, for a moment, classifies his own disciples amongst the unbelieving generation. At this stage, sometimes they're not like the crowd, and other times they're exactly like the crowd. And on this occasion, they too have failed to believe. It kind of reminds us of Yahweh, our God's frustration with ancient Israel. How long will I put up with you, you folks with no faith? There's a second section, and that is 20 through 24, Jesus's decisiveness. Jesus's decisiveness. Look at verse 20. And they brought the boy to Jesus, and they and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him in convulsions and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And his father asked, he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from his childhood, it had often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But now notice carefully, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if, if. If I can, all things are possible to the one who believes. And the father said, I do believe, verse 24, help my unbelief. We're reminded of the contrast between the powers of, of good and the powers of evil. It reminds me of the words of our Lord in John's gospel, chapter 10. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. If you remember that and lived your life by that, it might be all you need to know. The thief, Satan, only comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life more abundantly. He tries, the demonic force tries to kill the boy throws him on the ground, puts him in one last series of convulsions. And so the man says, if you can do anything, don't ever say to Jesus, if you can. Jesus can. Jesus is offended by the statement. If you can? Did you just say if you can, do you not realize I put the stars in their place? I stopped the waters. I divided the lands. I've already raised the dead. If you can, do you realize who I am? What do you mean if you can? If you can. What Jesus is saying is this. Whether this boy has the demon cast out, will not depend on my ability. It will not be stopped by my lack of power. 
how different that is from the leprous man in chapter 1 who said in the midst of his broken skin, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He knew Jesus could. He didn't know whether Jesus would be willing. This gentleman thinks Jesus is willing. He just doesn't know whether he can. You see the difference? He assumes Jesus is kind-hearted. If you can, I know you'll help. I'm not sure you can. Now, before we're too hard on this gentleman, the, the boy has been demon-possessed since childhood. And how many teachers and exorcists had he gone to see? Only to be disappointed. And in fact, he had come to Jesus' own disciples and he had heard that they had the power of the rabbi to cast out demons. And they had been casting out demons in chapter 6. And so, seeing that Jesus' disciples couldn't do it, he wasn't sure that Jesus could either. And so he says, if you can, if you can. Throughout this gospel, you're called upon to have an aggressive, believing faith. Those words of the Father are so precious because they describe me, and I bet they describe you. Oh, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Meaning I am on one hand fully believing, on another hand I'm wrestling, and therefore I'm caught between the fact that I believe that you can and the fact that I'm sure whether you can. So I do believe, and when I fail to believe, help my unbelief. What an honest declaration. Would we be so honest about our own faith? I've started to believe. Help me finish to completion all that belief. Fred Craddock was visiting Bethlehem. He met a Jewish man who was talking about his training earlier by a rabbi. And, and there he was at the side of thought to be the, the birth of Jesus. The rabbi explained how it all happened. And then when he got finished, he said, I know that's just one way to look at it. I know that's just one way to look at it. He explained that the reason he said that was his rabbi always gave him two explanations for everything so that he would have a choice of belief or unbelief, a belief or unbelief. God does not place us in a corner where we cannot choose unbelief. He places us in a position where we can choose to believe or we can choose Another explanation. He doesn't force us in a corner and say, you weasel, you have to believe me now. He wants our belief to be a choice. Do you believe? Oh, I do believe. And help my unbelief. Here's a, a third section. Verses 25 through 27. The boy in deliverance. Notice how Jesus delivers him. Verse 25, the crowd gathers. Jesus says, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and he raised him and got him up. 
It's a nuance. But have you ever noticed when Jesus cast out demons, he does it by his own authority. The disciples have to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out. That's what they say in Acts. In the name of Jesus Christ, you come out. They borrow from the authority of Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to borrow from anybody's authority. He simply says, come out. Come out. The demoniac makes one more attempt to kill the boy and throws him around. He foams in the face. And then most people think he is dead. Look at verse 27. And Jesus took him by the hand and raises him. Now the careful reader of Mark will remember that when Jairus' daughter is dead, that Jesus does what to her? Takes her by the hand and lifts her to life. Whether he's dead or not, I don't know, but it wouldn't have mattered. We've already raised the dead when Jesus takes the corpse by the hand. By the hand, arise. This surely must be a foreshadowing of the end of the gospel when Jesus himself will be the dead one and God will take him by the hand and bring him to the glory of the transfiguration and resurrection and life again. What seems to be dead may truly eternally be alive. Don't worry. He takes him by the hand and raises him to life. Final section, 28 through 29, the disciples' perplexity. And when they come into the house, the disciples began questioning Jesus privately, why could we not cast it out? They've been casting out demons all in this gospel. Why wouldn't this one come out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Why was this one different than the others? They had been healing the sick and casting out demons. And, and Jesus said, you got to pray. Had the disciples begun to think that the gift was theirs? Have you or I begun to think that the gift is ours? Did they think, oh, now all I'll have to do is say the word and now I can heal the sick and I can cast out the demons that the gift resides in me. And the reality is we are only a conduit. The gift always resides in our spiritual life and prayer life with God. Our ministry cannot be separated from our spirituality. They thought they had the power within themselves. Prayer is not congregation, a luxury to tack on to the end. It is the necessity of all those who want to be empowered to do anything good for the kingdom of God. So when has faithlessness hindered God's work in your life? Do you believe? Oh, I believe. But help my unbelief. 
a, a final word of caution. Never pressure upon God. Never presume upon God. Never think that he's just a wish-granting genie that we can say, well, if I only believe enough, whatever I want will happen. Did not the apostle Paul himself pray three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, whatever that was? And God said, no, no, I look stronger when you're weak. You're going to serve me in weakness. Did not Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane make prayer and supplication, take this cup from me. If there's another way, I want there to be another way. I don't really. Please, Father. And he says, no, no, you will drink the cup. Our own desires and wishes must be governed by the perfect will of God. Never naively state, if only I have enough faith, God will. While God can do anything, our only prayer is that he will do the one thing that makes us closer to him. While God can do anything, our prayer is that he will only do the one thing. It makes us closer to him. Do you believe? Oh, I believe. And when my belief is short, oh God, help my unbelief. Let us pray. Oh, God, today we're reminded of the power of faith, the power of Jesus, and the power of prayer. Indeed, what a powerful name it is. God, I, I know there may be some watching by way of television or some here, even this sanctuary, who would say this is their day to come in faith and belief and maybe even say, in the midst of their struggle, I believe, help my unbelief as I call Jesus Lord. And maybe there are others who would come to be a part of this great church family. In the name of Jesus we pray.